Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. There are many defining markers of particular eras of American history, and one of them is certainly notorious crimes. Think about it. Sacco and Vanzetti, the Lindbergh kidnapping, Jeffrey McDonald, Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, O.J. Simpson, and the kidnapping and crime spree of Patty Hearst. All are indelibly etched into the American psyche, and each represents a set of fears and cultural markers in the American landscape. Today, when domestic terrorism is on all of our minds, even more so than when it surfaced in the name of Bill Ayers and Bernadette Dorn during the 2008 campaign, the story of Patty Hearst and the ragtag Symbionese Liberation Army are well worth looking at. My guest, Jeffrey Tubin, who wrote the definitive book on the O.J. Simpson case, The Run of His Life, now turns his attention to the case of Patty Hearst in his new book, American Heiress. Jeffrey Tubin is a longtime staff writer for The New Yorker. He's the best-selling author of The Nine, The Oath, Too Close to Call, A Vast Conspiracy, and the aforementioned The Run of His Life. It is my pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Tubin back to this program to talk about American Heiress, the wild saga of the kidnapping, crimes, and trial of Patty Hearst. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us. Good to talk to you again. It's good to have you here. In thinking about the Patty Hearst story, it's really important, I think, to understand the context of the 70s when this story took place. It was a time that makes our current landscape almost look calm when we think about Watergate in Vietnam, the energy crisis, not that long after Charles Manson, bombings that were taking place all the time. It was a pretty crazy period in American history. You know, when I, I was alive during the 70s, but I was, I was a kid. And, you know, in my research for American eras, perhaps the most stunning part uh, of the context that I discovered was this was a time when there were a thousand bombings a year in the United States. Think about that. Think what that means, uh, what, what that would be like today. And uh, I think that's indicative of what an absolutely crazy time it was and what an ugly time it was. And the, the Hearst kidnapping was both a symptom and a reflection of what was going on. There's a tendency I think people have, and, and as you've been talking about this, you may have a better sense of it, but a tendency to think of the Hearst story as a 60s story, but it's really a 70s story, kind of the dark side of the 60s. Very much so. I mean, you know, I, I thought that the 70s uh, were sort of a, uh, a chilled out reaction to the 60s. Not so. The 70s were, um, were, were worse, darker, more violent, uh, less hopeful, uh, especially in the Bay Area. You know, I, I mean, you know, you, you, you're, you're there. Right. But, um, you know, people forget that um, Dirty Harry Clint Eastwood's famous detective was a uh, San Francisco detective because that's what the filmmakers wanted. San Francisco was such a dangerous city that um, that's where a tough detective would be. And it's interesting that the Symbionese Liberation Army and, and all of its characters, all the characters that you write about in American Heiress, came out essentially of this kind of California prison culture of that period. Right. Starting with the Attica riots in New York in 1971, and then moving to California later in the 70s, uh, the prisons were very much a hotbed of political activity. And the Vacaville prison, uh, which, which was near Berkeley, was a place where a lot of um, 
Berkeley students and people sort of in the counterculture in Berkeley uh, went to to both tutor and commune with with, with prisoners. And Donald DeFries, uh, who emerged as the leader of the Symbionese Liberation Army, uh, he he, um, developed alliances with these uh, all-white students. And they, uh, once he escaped uh, in 1973, he went to Berkeley and they took him in and that was the beginning of the Symbionese Liberation Army, and that was when he started to call himself General Field Marshal Sinkyu. What's interesting, though, is that as, as you talk about it, particularly when they were looking for Patty Hearst and, and all that went along with it, is that they had very little connection to some of the other similar groups of that period. You know, that, that's true, and it was one reason why they were so difficult to catch. Uh, because um, they, they had uh, no one who really who knew where they were. You know, Patty Hearst was kidnapped on February 4th, 1974. She and the others robbed the Hibernia Bank on April 15th, 1974. It wasn't until September of 1975, nearly a year and a half later, that, that she was arrested. So she was on the run for a year and a half. And they, the FBI, much to their embarrassment, just simply couldn't find it. And one of the reasons for that, as you write about, is that there really were no other groups, no other roads that, that led back to the SLA. Well, and also, even in the context of uh, the, the 70s counterculture, the SLA was too crazy for most of their, for most of their peers. You know, the, the act that put them on the map, uh, was the assassination of a man named Marcus Foster, who was an African-American, the school superintendent of um, Oakland. You know, someone who was admired even by the Black Panthers. And as a result of this mad decision to assassinate him, that was uh, something that alienated the SLA uh, from from everyone else. And that was uh, the key that there that was why they were so isolated from the very beginning. Talk a little bit about the murder of Marcus Foster, because in many ways that's the root of the reasons why Patty Hearst was kidnapped. Right. I mean, th- this act was so irrational that it, that, it, that it's hard even to describe. But um, Donald DeFries, that is uh, Sinku, had this fantasy that he was going to lead a revolution, and he thought that somehow Marcus Foster was a competitor for leadership in the black community. Now, Marcus Foster had no idea who Donald DeFries was, and, Mar- and Marcus Foster was a completely honorable person trying to uh, improve the lives of students. Um, so uh, it, it was a deeply irrational you know, hypothesis. But um, uh, DeFries and two others shot Marcus Foster dead on the street in Oakland, uh, two of his co-conspirators were arrested shortly thereafter. And it was in part as an attempt to get someone to trade for those two, um, those two people who were arrested. That's one reason why they kidnapped Patty Hearst. Talk a little bit about the kidnapping itself of Patty Hearst, how they found her, how that came about. This was a deeply terrifying uh, incident. Uh, you know, ironically, the way they found out about her 
was through her engagement announcement in the San Francisco Examiner, which was the paper owned by the Hearst family. Uh, and in those more innocent times, um, there was a public directory of the home address of every uh, student uh, at Berkeley. And once uh, the SLA decided to kidnap her, it was easy to determine where she lived. She lived at 2603 Benvenue Street, which is uh, you know, a beautiful, quiet street uh, just off the campus of Berkeley. And they staked out the house. And then on the night of February 4th, three, three people uh, knocked on the door, forced their way in, grabbed Patricia Hurst, stuffed her in the trunk of the car, and then uh, went, um, took her to uh, a house in uh, Daly City, uh, a blue-collar suburb of, of San Francisco, and put her in a closet where they tried to figure out what to do with her. Talk a little bit about the public reaction to the Patty Hearst story at the time, and then a little bit about the way it shifted and morphed over time. Well, I mean, the, the, the initial reaction was horror, right. although in the, in the context of the 70s, when there was so much madness, when there were two skyjackings a month, uh, that, that, you know, it was just one more crazy act by one of these lunatic counterculture operations. But what really... Uh, turned this kidnapping into a national phenomenon was the announcement in Feb on uh, March 31st uh, in a communique, a tape recording that was released by the SLA, that Patricia Hurst had changed her name to Tanya, and she had decided, in her words, to stay and fight with the SLA. And of course, that photograph of her with the the weapon, with the SLA flag, the the cobra, the background, is one of those iconic images. That's a little bit like the Mona Lisa in people terms of people trying to ascertain what she was thinking. And and what makes that photograph so compelling is that, as with the Mona Lisa, her expression is inscrutable. Is she terrified? Is she proud? Is she dangerous? Is she threatened? Uh, is she happy? Is she scared? Is she sad? It's very hard to determine from that photograph that's taken. And I think that photograph symbolizes the larger mystery of this whole case. What's interesting about this story is that even all these years later, there is memory of that photograph, and it's kind of frozen in time. It's hard to think of Patty Hearst being 60-something years old today. Well, that's, that, that's what happens, you know, uh, <laughs> with, with these story, with these big stories. People uh, uh, cross our, our, our radar screens, and, and, and they, they seem marked indelibly. You know, O.J. Simpson's almost 70 years old. Patty Hearst is 62 years old. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about her continued evolution with the SLA and the way in which there were so many opportunities over time for her to escape and never did. Well, not only were there uh, opportunities for her to escape, uh, but um, on May 16th, after the group fled to Los Angeles, um, she was out shopping with two other comrades in, in the SLA. They were caught shoplifting. Patty was in a van by herself, and um, she could have walked away. She could have driven away. She could have called the police. But what did she do? Patricia Hurst took out a machine gun 
and shot up the facade of the sporting goods store uh, where her two comrades had been. That, uh, to me, miraculously, she didn't kill anybody, but miraculously, that to me was um, the clearest signal of all that she has changed sides. And then subsequent to that, there were other bank robberies that she was involved in with with Bill and Emily Harris. Right. She was on the run for the next year and a half. And during that year and a half, uh, from from May 74 to August, uh, September of 75, um, they robbed two more banks, both in Sacramento, one where a... uh, Woman, a, 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 a customer was killed uh, by Emily Harris, uh, and they set off bombs in Northern California. They were active terrorists, and in my opinion, during that time, Patricia Hearst was a energetic and voluntary member of the group. Talk about the events that happened in Los Angeles on the 17th of May, the day after that shootout at the sporting goods store. The, the police believed that they had surrounded the house where Patty Hearst was was being held. They thought she was in there. In fact, she wasn't because uh, the previous day they had gotten into the, the crazy situation at Mel's Sporting Goods. But there were six of the SLA members in there. Uh, the uh, LAPD had a loudspeaker and they said, you know, surrender, come out, surrender. And um, the only response they got from the SLA was gunfire. What followed over the next two hours was um, the largest gun battle in American history to this day. And uh, uh, at the end of the day, all six members of the SLA were killed. And that was... um, the end of the original SLA, and it, it began what's known as uh, Patty's Lost Year because she was on the run by herself. I mean, not by herself, but but uh, with the with the surviving members. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about your views of what transpired with her. How it is that she became such a, as you say, a willing and active participant ultimately. Well, I think the the core of of you know, the SLA knew very little about her when they kidnapped her. They knew she was a Hearst, and they knew she was a college student. But she was uniquely receptive to their, to their entreaties. She was uh, in a very restless moment in her life. She was only 19 years old, and like many 19-year-olds, she was very much an unformed person. And she was engaged to be married to, to her fiancé, Steve Weed. But she was unhappy, and she didn't want to marry him, but she didn't want to admit to her mother that she didn't want to marry him. So uh, she was developing a beginning of a political conscience, all of which made her uh, vulnerable to the appeal of the SLA. In many ways, she was like a young person in college, sort of experimenting with different ideas, different ways of looking at the world except that the nature of the way this unfolded was, was a lot more violent, but also very reflective of what was going on at the time. Right. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the other members of the SLA, while not as wealthy as Patricia, they were also middle class. They were all white, ex- 
except for Donald DeFries. They were all they all came from stable middle class homes. Uh, Willie Wolf, uh, whom she fell in love with, uh, was the son of a physician from New Milford, Connecticut. I mean, these were not poor and desperate people. These were people who spoke her language, and they appealed to her. In the context of the time, the kinds of things they were doing, the kinds of, of stuff that was going on, was really reflective of everything that was going on at the time, as we talked about earlier. So it wasn't that shocking in some respects. Well, um, I, I, I don't know. It was, it was pretty shocking. I mean, remember, this is, to this day, the only political kidnapping in American history. It has never happened um, before or since. You know, a, a kidnapping, not for financial purposes, but just for political motives. So it was pretty darn shocking, but it was, uh, it was in the context of a world where there was a lot of shocking stuff happening. One of the other points that, that's so fascinating is that once she's arrested, she almost goes back to being Patty Hearst the heiress almost instantly. Well, I think this is, is why... I choose to view her conduct rather through the, than through the prism of brainwashing than through the prism of Patty Hearst as a rational actor. You know, she saw that there was no future in being a terrorist. She saw that life was a lot better with her friends who went skiing um, in Switzerland for the winter rather than with you know, living in basements uh, and eating horse meat, as the SLA was doing for a time. And this was a, uh, a, a very rational choice on her part to go back to the life that she knew. I want to talk a little bit about her conviction. There was the trial, Effley Bailey, who the, who the family brought in to represent her. She's convicted, sentenced to seven years or something like that. And then, then, her, years, sen- yeah. and then her sentence is commuted by President Carter. Ultimately, she gets a pardon from Bill Clinton. This goes back to this idea that, that you touched on before. I mean, it sort of continues the thread of it being so political in so many ways. And, and a story about wealth and privilege. Um, the, uh, this is a story about how, um, you know, we, we have a lot of people in our country who are, um, make bad mistakes and fall in with bad people and, and commit criminal acts and they go to prison and no one gives them a second thought. But Patty Hearst, who also fell in through no fault of her own with bad people and committed crimes. She not only gets a commutation, but she gets a pardon. Um, She is the only person in American history who receives a commutation from one president and a pardon from another, which is an extraordinary level of privilege. Right. And the other side of that is the point that you made before, which is that she's the only political kidnapping. I mean, in some ways, the two sort of fit side by side. That's right. That, that, that is right. It is a uh, window to a time that seems very, very far off from us. Jeffrey Tubin, the book is American Heiress, the wild saga of the kidnapping, crimes, and trial of Patty Hearst. Jeffrey, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you.